What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you don't have a clear curriculum for your classroom, it is so overwhelming to try to put that together yourself. Spending hours on Pinterest and Google pulling worksheets and pulling pieces of curriculum together to make something that works for your classroom. That's why we created the Autism Helper Curriculum and now offer Curriculum Access. Curriculum Access gets you access to all levels and all subjects of the highly differentiated evidence-based Autism Helper Curriculum. You can have students working on letter identification and working on parts of speech at the same time in our easy-to-use curriculum. We currently have hundreds of teachers using Curriculum Access from all over the world with consistently rave reviews. I want you to join that group of teachers. Now is the time to ask your administrators for curriculum access. We have an email template ready to go so you can ask them to set up a demo. Your administrators can jump on a live call with our team members to see everything that's included in the Autism Helper curriculum access. Next year, let's reduce the overwhelm. Let's start the year out with a path and a plan and resources to meet all the diverse needs of your students. Let's make next year the year of curriculum access. Head over to the show notes to learn more. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. podcast, I've shared a lot of interviews with teachers and parents and clinicians and BCBAs. Well, today is a little different. Today, I'm sharing my interview with two attorneys. In this interview, I talked to Vicki Brett and Amanda Sologi, who specialize in civil rights issues on behalf of children with special needs. They started the Inclusive Education Project, which is a legal advocacy nonprofit organization. I was really looking forward to talking with them because as a former teacher, I always had that fear of a due process case, right? We try to do everything right and we try to follow all of our legal rules and all of that, but we get worried, right? I don't know if you teachers have felt that way, but that's how I felt sometimes, especially when conflict arose. Vicki and Amanda give some great advice on really how to avoid due process. No one wants to be there. The schools, the parents, nobody does. So they gave some great tangible advice on things you can do to work towards preventing that. And a lot of our conversations centered around one of my favorite things to talk about, IEP goals. 
right? Only a special ed teacher would say that. We talk about kind of from a legal perspective, what IEP goals should and shouldn't look for, look like. They also gave some red flags that parents can be on the lookout for when reading IEP goals. So whether you are a teacher or a parent or a clinician, you're going to find a lot of value in this episode. And I hope it makes you revisit some of your IEP goals in a little bit of a different perspective. Let's jump in. Hi, Vicki and Amanda. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Sasha. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I would love for you both to tell a little bit about your background and the work that you both do to support the special needs community. I think we're each waiting for each other to start. I know. You guys are too polite. (laughs) Sure. Um, So I actually never thought I would go to law school. It was something that I, I, I had family that told me I should go to law school and I fought against it as hard as I could. Um, Kind of worked with kids um, almost all my life in different capacities. And it kind of fell um, my junior year of college. I need, you know, maybe I, I need to go into teaching and, you know, my aunt's a special ed teacher so I started working at a full inclusion school, um, working as a one-on-one aide for a little boy with Down syndrome and thought, okay, I love these kids. Um, you know, this is the path. And I, I absolutely fell in love with the kids that I worked with and the school that I worked at, you know, full inclusion where, you know, one of those one in a million schools where everything is done right. And it works so seamlessly. And, you know, I, quickly realize that this is not how it happens in most schools and that there are challenges on both sides from the school's end, from the parents' end, and realize that it was tough to be that teacher that always stood up for the kids first, Um, you know, and talking with families and talking with my aunt. And I just realized that it was going to be tough for me to kind of sit with my hands under, (laughs) you know, underneath me and not do anything and thought, you know, how can I, how else can I help these kids? Because I really felt like inclusion was such a special thing when it was done right, not just for the kids um, who are living with disabilities, but all kids in general. Like I saw um, the kids who had grown up from from kindergarten um, all the way up to fifth grade with, um, you know, just the whole population of, of a diverse background, not just race and religion and ethnicities, but also abilities and how inclusive, but not just inclusive, like it wasn't like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm accepting of these, these other children in my class. It was, they all cared about each other. They all helped each other. It was just this amazing little community. And I thought, how can I help this? And I found out that this was an area of law and, um, it just kind of clicked. It kind of fell in my lap as like, well, I fought it as hard as I could. I guess this is, you know, where we go. And, you know, (laughs) I'm, I'm fortunate enough that, it was something that I thought I wanted to do, and I absolutely loved doing it. And met Vicky in law school. Yeah, so I went to law school. I pretty much knew that I wanted to be a special education attorney. And um, sorry, I was like looking at the little bar, and I was like, "Oh no, can they not hear me?" Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> we can hear you. Uh, I uh, I fell into uh, special education law. Uh, we had studied abroad in Spain. Um, I was going into my third year. Amanda was going into her second year. And she's like, oh, you should you should take this special education class. I had a cousin. Um, I have a cousin on the spectrum. So I thought, oh, OK, that's interesting. Um, we quickly did not have the class together because I was taken away to the 
Orange County uh, section of the special education clinic and Amanda stayed in the Los Angeles. Um, I was pulled because I speak Spanish and they didn't have any Spanish speakers in the Orange County section. So I actually ended up working at a small um, law firm uh, after law school that did special education, personal injury and family law. Um, And the advisors of the clinic were actually my first bosses. So I very quickly started doing family law and it just was not my cup of tea, um, but I really enjoyed special education. So um, Amanda and I actually just kind of would meet up every now and again and talk about our cases. And then we just, the universe kind of called us together to just leave our old law firms. We just felt that they weren't doing things um, in the way that we felt needed to be done. So then we started our own law firm. So (laughs) we really had um, this vision of being able to provide support to families that, you know, weren't super combative. They just didn't have the right tools um, or maybe they hit a brick wall. Um, And most of the time we can kind of see that they actually are all on the same page, the district and the the parent, um, but they might be using different terms. They're, They're meaning the same thing, but they actually think that they're on opposite sides. So Even for my Spanish speakers, I'm translating everything, but for our English speakers, we're we're doing the same thing. Special education, I mean, it just has, you you know, Sasha, it has so many acronyms. Um, You know, we have PLOPs and we have LRE and we have the IDEA and just all these things. So um, Amanda and I really just strive to break down um, those bigger complex issues and try to be as collaborative as we can with the team. So we have um, have had our private law firm and now we have the inclusive education project, um, which we've had almost as long as our as our law firm um, that that is a nonprofit that provides um, free and low cost services um, to families. So just trying to even broaden the range of how many families we can help um, in different ways. That's so amazing. There is such a need for that because I think, you know, parents are worried about being taken advantage of, which sometimes there are, they are. But as you said, you know, it's so confusing and it's so, you know, it's like almost a foreign language, all Mm. of these acronyms and terms. Mm -hmm. And I can't even imagine as a parent sitting at a meeting about my child and not understanding at all what's going on, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. Well, that, even, must, that must feel horrible. Yeah, and I mean, what I find too is even teachers. Um, you know, I talk to my aunt all the time, and um, you know, I think back to undergrad. I I was a child development major, and and at, at um, my undergrad, the child development major overlapped with the teaching credential program. So like students could get their teaching credential and, and their degree in like five years. And so a lot of the classes that I took for my major were the same classes that were being taken um, to prepare to get to the credential program. And when I think back to the classes that I took that were the same as these general education teachers took, the, um, the lack of information about differential learning or disabilities, um, it's so minimal, you know? And mm-hmm. so I think you know, a lot of times we, what we talk to our clients about is trying to understand the perspective from the school in some instances. So like when a child has a disability and they're in a general education class, 
a lot of times the teachers are not trained on you know, how to identify a behavior that is um, symptomatic of autism or ADHD or sensory processing or dyslexia versus a child who's just acting out, right? And so if you Mm -hmm. don't have the expertise to understand these nuances, then it's going to be hard to support those students. So, you know, one of the things that like, we really strive to do is not and, and where we kind of came about the idea of our podcast is that we want to spread information, not just to families, but to educators too, that there's more out there and that there's so many resources and, you know, um, available to learning and, and the programs that the teachers go through to get to the point where they're teachers only goes so far. Right. And, you know, yeah. we, we always say like, we eat, sleep, breathe <laughs> special education because we like try to um, you know, we're not psychologists, we're not teachers, we're, you know, we're attorneys, we were trained in the law, but we quickly realized that the law isn't the only way to help these families. I mean, certainly, yes, we file complaints, and we go through litigation. But at the end of the day, the only way to really change the system is to get more people educated on both sides about, Mm -hmm. you know, what is needed for these kids and what is possible. And so like, a lot of our clients are ones that we're not we're not doing any litigation. We're not throwing out, you know, that we're an attorney. Um, you know, I try to go to IEP meetings, like it's a blend in, so to speak. Like I want to be part of that team so that I can really provide, you know, that input of, and, and it's not like I have this, you know, Vicki or I have some special expertise that we know how to fix IEPs. It's just, we go to so many of them and we read so many IEPs and we talk to so many psychologists that a lot of times it's as simple as there's a problem something is not going right in the classroom. And I've gone to so many IEPs where I've heard so many different solutions that maybe nine out of 10 of those solutions won't work for this kid, but maybe one will. And so we throw them out and we say, what about this? What about that? Let's try it. The concept of trying things, like I think parents and teachers don't often like think, they think, well, we have to have a a solid solution. We need to know for a fact that this is going to work. But we don't, we don't ever know. All kids are different. They're all individualized, right? And that's how IEP should be. So we need to be willing to take risks and try things because we don't know until we try. And that's a great point. You know, I've been in many of those meetings where, it, it, like you said, it's just everyone throwing out kind of their own idea, their own perspective. And it doesn't feel like a team. It just feels yeah. like a lot of people mm-hmm. like, this is my part. This is my part. Mm-hmm. This is my part. But sometimes you just need that person to like, put all those parts together. Well, like how can the Absolutely. OT jump in here and how can the teacher support the case manager and the counselor? But it doesn't always become that innately right. just because it's eight professionals at a table. Yeah. Well, no one Absolutely. wants to go into someone else's lane um, sometimes yes. <laughs> too, because they're but like, I mean that, but that defeats the purpose of the IEP team, right? right. It's supposed to be a collaborative effort. And I, and I think that, you know, it's top down. So, you know, oftentimes where we're involved, there's a need for a due process because the parent has been trying to do things on their own for quite some time. Maybe they, they hit a wall, maybe, you know, they had a friend that went through a similar experience and, and got, you know, some really great services out of a due process. But most of the time, parents are pretty upset when they find us, right? Most most attorneys don't know we exist. And, and for the most part, a lot of parents don't know that we exist until they're like Googling furiously um, one day <laughs> and happen across us, right? So, you know, um, we... 
we really, you know, our first instinct obviously is not like Amanda said to, to rush and, and file a complaint, you know, sometimes depending on the district, that's the best idea. And we advise our clients of that. And sometimes, you know, we can go in and, and be that collaborator, right? Be that person from the outside kind of looking in and saying like, Hey, what about this? What about that? And sometimes you just need that spark that, that just different perspective um, to avoid, you know, a, a due process. But I mean, the due process request is really reserved for those instances in which a district has just completely failed to provide um, what is appropriate for that child. So that could just, you know, be that they didn't assess in certain areas, um, even though the parent has brought, you know, to the attention of the district, you know, this, this area um, of occupational therapy that the child may need. Um, and so that's, that's when we typically become involved at that point. Um, and, you know, we explain to parents, it, it is a process, right? It is, it is suing the school district. Um, and, you know, we, we use the district's own records. Um, and, and sometimes parents have private um, services or private evaluations that we can use. But um, for the most part, we really just kind of stick with, with what is given to us. We, we don't have any form of discovery. We just typically request the records and um, we're able to kind of gather as much information as we can um, and, and be able to provide to the school a cohesive complaint, a really holistic approach to like, this is all that's happened. You know, it's, it's not just very like, well, you did not provide speech and language for six months. You know, we really try to paint a picture um, of the child and of the um, substantial violations um, that have impacted the child's um, education and why they, they would need X, Y, and Z moving forward. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And I'm sure maybe even sometimes school districts, once you put that all together, might not have been able to see that big picture if you hadn't. Because it's a lot of those like quick fixes and band-aids and band-aids and band-aids that eventually mm-hmm. lead to a huge problem. And I know, you know, you said you mentioned avoiding due process. And I know that is every teacher's goal, every parent's goal. Like no one yeah. wants no. to be in that point. And what are your suggestions, not only for avoiding the due process, but even a step before that, what are your suggestions for avoiding the the furious Google, right? The parent mm-hmm. furiously Googling, mm-hmm. how can I get help? Like how how can we avoid getting there before we even approach due process? What are some things teachers can do to to help avoid that? I mean, I, I think a big thing is kind of taking a step back and remembering that not everyone is on the same page. Not everyone has the same level of experience or knowledge. Um, you know, so if it's, whether it's a teacher or a speech therapist or even a parent, 
um, just like Vicky was saying earlier with terminology. Um, a lot of times a lot is said in an IEP meeting that goes in one ear out the other, um, not because parents aren't paying attention. I mean, they're holding on to every last word in those meetings, but because either they don't understand something, it's new to them, or the words that are being used are very much, they have multiple meanings. Um, and I think that, that teams are often quick to assume that everything they say, the parents just get it. Um, and there's not always an explanation. So, you know, the, the talking about the why or the how, um, for instance, like with goals, like once goals are developed, being able to explain to a parent how that goal is going to get them to um, a, a mastery of a skill, right, or um, progress. Because it's it may be obvious to a speech therapist um, how working on a certain, you know, going through a certain social story is going to get the student to um, eventually be able to interact with their peers appropriately. But the connection isn't always there for the parents because they're not in it every day, right? So um, even when looking at, at, at how we're talking about goals, how we're talking about services, um, I think a lot is said that it's like, well, you know, anyone, anyone that is in something every day, it's very easy for them to use acronyms, to, um, you know, go through it thinking everyone understands like, exactly what's being said because they know exactly what they're saying, but everyone else maybe doesn't. And we often find parents that sit at IEP meetings and they think, well, I don't really, I don't, I don't know everything that's happening. I'm not the professional. So I'm just going to trust that it's okay. Um, and then a couple years later, they're not seeing the same thing that they would hope that they would see. And then that's when they get frustrated because they're like, well, no one ever explained this to me. Um, mm -hmm. so like a good example that I like to give to families is, you know, when we look at how we're going to address sensory processing in, in a classroom, um, a lot of times goals are put in place to have a child, um, use coping strategies and it's done in a separate setting and it's literally, you know, having the child go through the coping strategies. And I get parents who go, well, I just don't understand. Like he's stemming in the classroom all the time or he needs to get up. Like this is so disconnected. But when I explain, look, there's a process in how to get your child to utilize the sensory coping mechanism, the mechanisms in the classroom, right? First, especially for a younger child, we need to teach them, you know, how to use a strategy. Then we need to teach them when to use the strategy. And it might be that for a while, the child doesn't understand the triggers where they need a movement break or they need to use a fidget. Um, but if someone prompts them when they, you know, notice the triggers, then they're going to start to use it. But then the third step of getting to the point where the child recognizes, oh, this is how I'm feeling internally. I know that this works for me. Now I'm going to independently use it. But we can't get there immediately, right? We have to go through the stages. So that explanation, then families are like, okay, that makes sense. I know where we are in the process. We're at stage one. Once we get past stage one, it's like the next step. But a lot of times the school teams aren't always as quick to explain that because they know it, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're already getting there in their head where the ultimate goal is. Um, and so it's hard for the families to connect from where we start with the goal to where we're eventually going to end up. And the same goes for like independence too. 
Um, and so I think like taking some time to take a step back and explaining things, um, explaining the process, defining things makes all the difference because not only are you helping the family understand, but you're building that trust too, because then the family, you know, the, the big, the, um, easiest way to have problems with trust between a parent and a school is when a family just doesn't understand or they don't have knowledge. So the minute they think that they're out of the loop, of course, it's easy for them to distrust the school, right? Because they don't know what's going on. And the minute you don't know what's going on, then you can start to get frustrated. So as much as we can be transparent and, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of teams, especially ones that have been through litigation, have been through due process, sometimes are hesitant to provide um, a family with more detail because they're worried. And I've had this before. Like I've, I've had teams where I've been um, on the IEP team for years and everything is working pretty seamlessly um, because we're all like really, we've, we've, it, it took us a while to get there, right? We had to um, work through the kinks to be collaborative, but we got to the point where we're collaborative where I've had, you know, where I've asked for data because like a family wants to replicate something at home, right? They, they really want to do what's best for their child. And I've had a, a program specialist ask me, you know, I'm really hesitant to give this data, give this information because I just, we don't want it to be used against us. And that is, that is a reality. There are some attorneys yeah. out there and there are some families that only are gathering information just to use it against them. And so I get that hesitation, but I think if we're more forthcoming with information and both sides too, like whatever's happening at home should be shared with the team. Like I have families all the time that say, I'm doing this strategy or I have home ABA that's using X, Y, and Z. And I go, have you shared this with the IEP team? Have you, have you had the two BCBAs collaborate? And they go, no. And I go, why not? You're withholding information too. You don't like it when they withhold. So it goes both ways. That's a great point. And that breaks down, you know, trust on the teacher's end too, because sometimes, you know, teachers have been burned, so they're paranoid. So when, you know, that comes out towards the end of the year or after a few years of working with a kid, yeah, they're getting in-home services or, oh yeah, there's all these big problem behaviors that are happening at home that I haven't told you about. And then when it happens at school, we're like, whoa, we didn't know this was happening. And right. mom's like, oh yeah, it's been happening. So yeah, it, and then that starts that kind of combative relationship on that end as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, for, for teachers, I think sometimes they get caught up on these little nuanced ways or, or the, the bank in which they might be kind of looking at to create the goals. I, I really love simplicity. I, I think that for a parent, if they can't replicate that goal at home on their own, having no expertise, I think then the goal needs to be rewritten. Um, it, it, it's really it gets really convoluted, right? Where it's just like in four out of five trials with 80% accuracy and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, what are we even talking about? Okay, what do we want to accomplish in one year? Okay, how can we do that? Um, and just really being able to break it down because technically, if that parent moves to a new district, the new team should look at those goals and know exactly what to do. Right. I can't. Oh my gosh. Tell you, I just want to like stand up and say like Alleluia. Yeah. I agree yeah. so much. Right. Right. And like, how many times have you seen you know a kid coming from a different district and you're like, what the heck is this goal even saying? <laughs> right. And it should not just be an exclusive secret language that only yes, that team right. for that year because what happens? 
kid stays in the same school, you get a whole new teacher, maybe you get a new, you know, your OT goes on maternity leave, you have a new speech and language pathologist, maybe there's a new school psych, and then it's just like, oh my gosh, like we have to start all over. Um, And I think that that's where a lot of frustration comes from too, because you'll have a parent that thinks, okay, yeah, these goals are good. And then maybe the next year, a new teacher's like, no, these are awful. Right. And it's just like, oh my gosh, like how did, like, I didn't know. And I, and I yeah. think that sometimes it like you, you, ha- you have it within you. There's a gut instinct as a teacher. If you know that you are doing everything that this, chi- you know, that's appropriate for this child. Um, you as a parent know when something's off, right. When, when you feel like they're not listening to you. Um, yeah. And I, I think that it's really important for parents to, even if they don't want to share at the IEP team, write out all your concerns and then just read it at the IEP meeting. It's super intimidating to have 13 people on the other side of this long table or worse, if you're in a a first grade or second grade classroom and they're making you sit on the little chairs, you know, that's intimidating. (laughs) Well, Um, and they're being read so much information that they haven't received. Um, And so to expect a parent to digest all that information, I mean, I would say like the the biggest thing a a team can do is give the draft IEP ahead of time, at least the goals, because, you know, for a family to like, I mean, I, and and I even go to IEPs where like, I have to ask, can I get a copy? Cause it's being read to me. And I know that I'm a visual learner when it comes to understanding stuff. And when you think about it, if you're not someone who's a speech therapist or a special education teacher, if you're looking at goals, you need to make sure that you understand it. It's not going to be automatic that you understand it. So if it's going to be easier for most people if they hear it and see it. So have it in front. But like if the family can look at it in advance, they're more likely to have questions um, to be able to get those clarifications. So like thinking about what Vicki said about making it as simple, like, we want to make things clear as well. So I often say like, you know, we have goals where we're ha- having children answer WH questions. Use the WH questions with your goals. Who, what, where, why, when. Same with accommodations. Um, because how many times have you gone to an annual IEP where the IEP, even if it was written by the same team, where you go, well, you know what? It was written in this way, but the goal wasn't met as written, but the skill was met, right? Because the goal didn't say independence or it said independence and the student is doing well with something, but the way it was written, technically the student didn't meet the goal. But what's the ultimate goal, you know? Um, yeah. What we want is the child to meet the skill. Right. And, and then so, suddenly mom and dad are like, well, why are we doing this goal again then? And then they're like all spirally and confused. Exactly. So like if we're able to be very clear about things, so like is something being done independent or not independent? Um, is it done in what setting is it being done? Is it being done in the classroom in, you know, whole group? Is it in small group? Is it in a one-on-one session with a speech teacher? Is it out on the playground? Um, because that makes a difference too, because I often have times where goals are written very vague. And so if I read it, I'm like, well, it didn't say where, so I'm assuming it's everywhere. But then when I get the data on whether or not the goal was met, they're only looking at the speech session or they're only looking at small group. And I go, well, that doesn't mean that the goal was met. And when we really think about wanting to make sure that a student has generalized a skill, 
you know, first, yeah, we may need to have it be isolated to a speech session or a one-on-one -on -one session, but eventually it needs to be done in a whole group. And so um, I, I know that sometimes teams will, will replicate goals, but there will be subtle nuances like that. And that's not explained to the family. So it may appear that it's the same goal, but it's, it's working on generalizing that skill. And back to kind of what you're saying, connecting those dots on like, yeah. hey, last year we did this in the speech session. This year we're doing it in small group. Next year we're hoping we can do it in the gen ed classroom. So right. kind of painting that picture. And, you know, all of this is something I'm so passionate about on, on writing good IEP goals because I think that's like, that's the foundation of where everything else goes wrong. Like yeah. it's hard to take data. It's hard to train your staff. It's hard to communicate with parents if you're starting from a place of a poorly written IEP goal. Right. And I think sometimes teams think that they're doing themselves a favor mm -hmm. and giving themselves more flexibility by writing that more mm -hmm. vague, open mm -hmm. goal, but it's absolutely the opposite. You All know, right. it's harder. And like you said, Vicki, in that I tell teachers a lot, like in your untimely death, what you're going to be worried about is your IEPs and you want to make <laughs> sure those IEPs are followed oh, correctly. And, yeah. you know, they're not, you know, yeah. and I mean, so it'll, it really shows then adding that specificity of where it's done, what it looks like. Um, you know, I see like a million goals all the time, you know, we'll, we'll improve reading comprehension. And you're like, right. how, right. how, or answer WH question, yeah. verbally or, written. Exactly. What? Or my favorite, the child will demonstrate understanding of this topic. Yes. And I go, they're nonverbal. <laughs> how are they yeah. demonstrating understanding? Like that is not measurable. And, and, and speaking of like measurable, you know, one of the things I most often have challenges with is when we look at like what data is taken, like it's, and this goes um, most often for behavior goals, but often for other stuff too. Um, what's your definition of aggression? It's going to be yeah. very different than my definition, than Vicky's definition, than mm -hmm. parent one, parent two, parent three, and the teachers. So like I, I will get in with behavior goals where we're tracking data and, you know, and, 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 Parents get frustrated with this too because they're hearing the word aggression. And in their mind, their thing of aggression is my kid is kicking, screaming, and hitting. This is bad, <laughs> right? But maybe the aggression that, and, and I've had this in IEPs, the aggression that is actually being talked about in the goal is the student talked back. When the, mm -hmm. the teacher or the aide asks them to do something, they go, no. Well, is that, is that aggression in the same sense that most people would think aggression? Not necessarily. So like defining things and making, and, and I get teams that say, well, well, we don't want to make things too complicated. We don't want to put too much words in the goal. And I go, but if you're using a term of art that can be interpreted in many different ways, you need to define it. Otherwise, when you're, because like it, it may be tracked by multiple people. The data might have um, an aid. Uh, a, a special ed teacher, a gen ed teacher, that's all taking data. And what if one of them is tracking whether or not the student talks back, but the other one is tracking whether or not they hit someone. And the third is tracking, do they go in a full down meltdown? And so two of them might be, oh, they met this goal. There was zero instance of aggression. But the other one is saying, no, we have 20 instances of aggression a day. So of course the parent is going to challenge that because they're like, I don't understand. This makes no sense. I get a data that's saying there's no instances of aggression, but I get notes home that say that they talked back 20 times in the day. So what is it? You know? Yeah. And and then when we talk about avoiding having that combative relationship, no wonder it's starting there because mm -hmm. all of this is so confusing. Yeah. This is great advice. So I think, you know, 
from both the parent and the teacher perspective, you know, as the teacher sending home those drafts of the IEP, even if mom and dad don't ask for it, sending it home anyways. Um, And I think many, many parents don't even know they can get that. Yeah. And writing it in a language that that is specific enough that you know right away that mom and dad can understand this. You know how you're going to take data on this. You know how you're going to work on this skill. And then in the meeting, talking about, you know, how that goal leads to those bigger skills you're all looking for. And from the parent then, not being afraid to ask clarifying questions um, and the team understanding that if a parent is asking a clarifying question, they're not necessarily challenging the goal. They're seeking to understand right? Because I think a lot of times parents leave an IEP and they go, well, I don't really understand what's going on with that goal, but I don't want to be seen as combative. But it's like, Mm -hmm. no, 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 you need to understand. If you don't understand what's meant by aggression, or maybe you think you understand, but you want to just make sure everyone understands, um, there's no harm in asking those questions. Um, You know, just like Vicky said, like we recommend the parents Think about that goal. Do you know what you're doing at home if you're replicating that goal? Do you know how you're measuring it? Um, you know, because if you don't, then that's that's when you know clarifications. Because like the team, the team has their understanding, and whether or not the speech therapist has talked to the behavior specialist um, about these goals or not, they're thinking everyone understands. And until a family says otherwise, they're going to assume, right? So we have to make like no one is reading anyone else's mind. So on both sides, we need to be explaining, this is how I'm feeling, or this is what I think. Let's have a discussion about it. And so let's talk about mastery criteria with IEP goals. This is something I've I've talked a lot about on my podcast and social media, and sometimes people push back at me on this, but I very often get an IEP, and I don't know if you guys get this as well, that has all of the goals with the same mastery criteria. And it's usually that all the goals are at that very comfortable 80% mastery Uh because we don't want to like, you know, push it too hard. And it drives me crazy because I always point out to people, 80% means you have one out of five wrong. Like, that's a lot. Like if you, if you spell every fifth word wrong, you're not winning at life right now. Right. Um, and everyone's like, well, I can't do a hundred percent. And I'm like, well, why not? Like some yeah. skills we can. Well, and I think it depends on the skill too, because like, if we're talking about a student, um, completing tasks on time, you know, not everyone completes every single task on time all the time. They're not perfect. So expecting a seven-year-old to be perfect, like, That would be something that maybe we're looking at 90%. Maybe we're looking at 80%. But if we're talking about a behavior like hitting, oh, that needs to be 100. Like, yeah. (laughs) Or like eloping off campus, like needs to be 100. Like that that this does not happen, right? Um, So like- And you're not going to go from zero to 60 overnight. I think that that is oftentimes lost on parents too. And kind of explaining, you know, the the buildup, like, you know, he's seven years old. Sometimes seven-year-olds cannot sustain their attention, whether they're neurotypical or not, (laughs) for more than 10 minutes. So let's be realistic. And that's why I think, and sorry to jump in, Amanda, but that's why I think it's important to have the general education teacher there. I don't care if the child's been in special education 
for three years. The goal is always to be in the least restrictive environment. And whether that means during reading time in elementary school, we can find all these great ways, right? Like typically it's music, recess, you know, assemblies, but you know, let's try to find like maybe the child can't sustain when they're reading a story for 10 minutes. And that's the general instruction, right? right? We should be fighting for that. And I think that oftentimes people get hung up on these like, well, no, he can't sustain his attention for more than 15 minutes. It's like, yeah, but no seven-year-old can. So I think the holistic approach, right? Um, What is it that you are wanting at at the end? You know, what is the overarching goal for this year? Yes, we have the down the line. We have, you know, he's going to be 18, you know, in 10 years, but what can we do now (laughs) that's that's typical? And that is something that we can work at. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And we miss that if the gen ed teacher is not at the meeting. Right. Yeah. Because we get a lot of times where, you know, a family might challenge a goal because they're like, I don't understand why we're still working on this one skill. They've made a lot of progress. Why are we trying to make it hundred percent? And they'll say like my, I have another child that's older. And like when they were this age, they did some of this. Mm-hmm. So like losing sight of, you know, when we're in an IEP, it's very easy to hone in on all the deficits. Right. And we focus so much on the deficits that oftentimes we're talking and parents have this problem too sometimes where you see a deficit and you think immediately that needs to be fixed. And it's like, well, you know, this age group is going to inherently have that deficit anyway. You know, talk about a high school student who doesn't, um, you know, complete all their homework. Well, most high school students don't complete all their homework, right? So like we have to look at the circumstances and in looking at circumstances, looking at that baseline, like maybe, you know, I guarantee you 80% mastery, not only may it not be appropriate for every single skill, but also where was the student to begin with? Because if they were at 0%, like they couldn't do something at all, you know, it depends on how difficult the skill is, but, you know, we shouldn't be having goals that are trying to jump 80% in a year, unless it's something simple. So like, yeah, so and the resources are there, right? The, the right. You know, maybe the child has a behavioral, uh, an interventionist, right? Um, right. That right. is able to take that from zero to a right. hundred, right? right? Um, like and, a and student, I think that, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah. It's like a student that is learning coping strategies, right? For sensory processing. That might be something that if you're talking about a 14 year old, might be pretty quick. So we might be able to get from zero to 80 in a year because they're buying into it. Maybe they've, you know, started using some of the strategies and getting them to just use it in the classroom. Like in an entire year, you probably can get there. But if you're talking about a five-year-old who is needing to understand why we're even using these strategies in the first place to then use them independently, yeah, we may not get 80% of progress. Um, but that's, I think one of the biggest, um, problems I see with even draft IEPs or even IEPs that I, I get, um, from like new clients is there's no baseline data, um, or the baseline data doesn't connect with the goal. So like in math, the baseline data is, you know, Johnny is able to, um, solve, um, simple addition and subtraction problems 80% of the time, or maybe there's not even an 80%. Um, but the goal is about division. Well, mm-hmm. how does talking about addition <laughs> and subtraction have anything to do with division? It doesn't. In reality, we don't know that they can get 80% of these division problems because we don't even know where they're at. Have they even learned it? 
have they been working on it for two years and they're actually at 60%. So 60% to 80% when they've been working on division for four years, like that's not a good goal because that's not really measuring that much progress. And I think what's important too for a lot of parents is that, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the teacher will come with the last two weeks worth of um, work samples. And so the parent's like, well, yeah, of course, we're here now. So he's passing these goals. And it's something, come here. Um, it's something that needs to be shown, right? The progression. Um, this is where he started right? This is me after you signed the IEP, working on this work sample, da, 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 da. And this is where we're at. Um, because, you know, parents, especially when they're angry, they get very suspicious, right? And the teachers sitting here and they're like, no, we've been working our butts off to yeah. get him to pass the school, you know, and, and here it is. I think that that is helpful too. Um, when you are just waiting for once a year to be told whether your child is making progress or not making progress or you, or you don't think that they are, but the district's saying, nope, she passed everything. It's really frustrating. So that's right. why oftentimes if the teacher is seeing something or even if the parent is seeing something, you can request that IEP meeting parent and within 30 days, you're going to have that IEP meeting. You know, I'm not suggesting that you have an IEP meeting, you know, every month. I think that that's excessive, but you know, you should be getting those progress reports on the goals. And if you're seeing that the baseline was, he was supposed to reach 30% and he's still at 0%, even if it's for one goal, that's a problem, right? right. So you should right. be able to have an IEP meeting to discuss what additional resources um, and or services and times are needed for the child. And more often than not, we do find that um, families are not getting those progress reports. So, you know, not like they don't even know that they should request an IEP sooner than the annual. Um, I mean, many families don't know that they even are allowed to, but then whether yeah. or not they should, right? Um, because they're not getting progress reports. I mean, even when we request records from um, uh, for families, it's so rare that we get progress reports. Like we usually get the annual and that's it. And so- Or the progress reports are so vague, like, yep, meeting all goals. Yeah. And you're like- and parents probably like, wait, what are the goals? Yeah. I forgot. That was yeah. three months ago. Yeah. And and what does that mean, actually? Right. Or the benchmark, they're saying the benchmark has been met. But let's say the benchmarks are set for 20, 40, 60, and then 80%. Well, maybe the benchmark one was met, but it was met at 60%. And the goal was for 20. Well, we know that this goal is too easy, right? And, yeah. and that's what the progress reports are meant to do. Tell us early is the goal too easy or is the goal too challenging, right? Do we need to be amending it? Um, and so like, I get all the time, like I'll have AP meetings where a student is, like a family is thinking that the goal is not challenging enough, right? Because we're saying um, we're only looking at 50% by the end of the year. And the team is trying to explain, well, this is a really challenging um, skill for the student. Uh, so that's why we think we're at this point. And we get all the time from teachers that say, look, if, if you know, they meet 50% before the annual, we can amend the goal, right? How often is that said? But how often is it done? It's never. <laughs> yeah, because we're not really tracking it, right? We're not looking at, at, at the benchmarks. Like, you know, if the benchmark, if the goal is 50%, then the benchmarks really should be probably like 15, 30 you know, you know, 40, maybe, 
Um, you know, and if at that point at the 15% mark, they're really at 30, that's how we know that it's not challenging enough. Or if they're supposed to be at 30 and they're only at 10, it, maybe it's too challenging. And I think, um, you know, it's probably a function, you know, I'm not in the schools day to day, so I can't say from experience, but I can say that, you know, if, uh, if a teacher has 30 students, um, you know, and they're tracking all these goals, you know, maybe on a regular basis, they're not sitting there looking at this data and like, oh, oh my gosh, they've, you know, exceeded the benchmark. We need to have an IEP. So I think, you know, a helpful tip for teachers is maybe put like put in place some kind of schedule um, or some kind of plan um, because the annuals aren't going to be all on the same time. So the benchmarks probably aren't going to be due all at the same time. Um, because if the annuals aren't at the same time, the benchmarks shouldn't be. And that's, that's a problem we see as well. But, you know, so if you have 30 students and they each have different annuals, right. And you're like, well, I'm not doing it all at once. I'm not sitting down there and then looking, okay. You know, sending out the progress reports, you know, maybe you need to be setting, um, alerts for yourself. I mean, most people do that for normal things, right? Like I need to go pick up paper towels or I need to go pick up my prescription, right? We're, we're setting yeah. reminders for ourselves. So maybe set up a system where it's like, if, if um, a progress report is due November 1st, then maybe mid-October, um, we need to be looking, how is the student doing? You know, and that might yeah. only take a couple of minutes. If you truly are tracking data and you're working on the goal, it shouldn't take that long to look at it and see, you know, are we on track? Oh, you know, everything looks good. Um, you know, I, I know it seems like if we have 30 students, how, you know, the amount of information we have to put in these progress reports, but like, I don't think it needs to be that much information. It could literally be something where, okay, the benchmark was to be at 30%. We're at 25 or we're at 35 that seems maybe we're on track, but if we're at 50 or 10. And I think that that is probably some of the most important work that a teacher can do if there is an unsupportive administration or or head, right. That that's leading, um, that's continuously saying no to everything, um, whether or not it is appropriate for the child. I I think that being able to kind of take their own notes. I, I remember going to an IEP meeting and the parents, you know, from their perspective, like, you know, they wanted a private school and the child wasn't making any progress and this and other thing. And this teacher came and I've never seen, he's, he just had like these two big giant binders and was just like, you know, pointing out like, this is a work sample before this is what, and it was just like, he was so good at his job, whether or not the administration was supportive of him, he was so good at what he was doing, keeping data, keeping everything that I, I couldn't file a complaint because <laughs> evidence in which he had, you know, and, and that may have been his private notes, but if I'm going to get him on the stand, you know, he's going to know everything because he will have studied these binders. Um, right. and, and I'm not saying that every teacher needs to do that. Obviously there's, there's many excellent teachers out there and they're completely unsupported and, you know, they're the, at the front lines. And, you know, we know that there are teachers out there that sometimes just slide our card across the table to parent and say, you didn't hear this from me. And, you know, that's sad, you know, that they should be able to be those advocates that they want to be um, for, for a lot of these children. Um, but I think that, that that's the, the best 
piece of advice, you know, if you have everything down, you know, there's only so much, you know, I'm not, I'm not characterizing any blame towards you. It'll be towards administrators, but, right. yeah. but at least, you know, you'll have that. And and I think that, you know, teachers need to hear that sometimes. That um, like, I'm so happy you said that because okay. I, you know, I'm not an attorney. I'm, I'm a BCBA, yeah. but I mm-hmm. like my, everything is data. So right. to, to hear you say that, that, you know, when we're thinking we want to avoid due process, we want to avoid, you know, combative issues with administration or parents. To me, it always does come down to data because people can't argue with that. You People can argue with your opinion on what you think. Mm -hmm. But when you come in and say, this is what I think, and let me show you why, and you have the data to support that up, suddenly everyone's real quiet, you know, and it's, it's a whole different conversation. Well, and bringing that data from the start, rather than using it to prove your case is different too. Like I think a lot of times parents get frustrated because they may see one thing at home and, or they're getting like, even when we talk about like um, work in the classroom, like they get things home. Like I think teachers forget that parents pay attention to that. They get homework back, they get tasks back. And so if you're saying that a student is making progress on their reading comprehension, but they're getting these tests back where they're failing, of course, a, a parent is going to challenge that, right? Because they're looking at the only information that they have is this, right? But maybe there's more happening in the classroom with reading comprehension. And the the, the um, worksheets that are being sent home are just a fraction of it. And, and sometimes this is the case where like worksheets that get sent home are like almost like practice, where a student needs to practice a skill a lot of times before they can master it. So the family is getting only a, only a, a fraction or... Um, a part of the picture, right, of what's happening. So if the fa- if the teacher can come to the IEP meeting with, this is how we approach reading comprehension. We read something, then we do these worksheets, then we discuss and we talk about it, and then we do another worksheet where we hope that they're doing better. But maybe that doesn't go home because maybe that's an in-class type thing. Um, if they can explain that and then show like all of it and say, this is why we think that the student has mastered the skill because we're not Mm -hmm. looking at the first three steps because that's the learning process. We're looking at the final result and the family is looking at the learning process, but they don't understand that. So bring that, explain it, show what they're doing in the classroom, because then it's easier for the family to be like, oh, rather than, well, I see this, so prove me wrong. Well, it shouldn't have to get to that point, right? We shouldn't be, you know, asking for data after the fact. Let's get the information up front because you're more likely to gonna find someone who trusts you with that information up front. Yes, so true. Oh my gosh, I could talk to you guys about IEP goals all day. It's <laughs> <Yes, laughs> like too fun with you too. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, th- you know, thank you guys so much. This has been super informative, I think, for both a teacher and a parent on even kind of going as specific as just what the IEP goals look like on how many implications that have in really all areas. Um, So thank you both so much. Can you share where people can go to find a little bit more about you guys? Sure, absolutely. Um, So probably the, the, the best thing we'd want them to look at is, you know, we do have a podcast where we talk about these kinds of issues all the time. And um, we have different guests um, from BCBAs, the teachers to parents to, um, neuropsychs um, and whatnot. So it's called the Inclusive Education Project Podcast, which you can find anywhere you find your podcast, Apple, Play, Stitcher, um, Spotify, you know, you name it. Um, and you can also go to www.inclusiveeducationproject.org. 
Um, you know, we have our Facebook page and um, Instagram page. And then we also have a Facebook group that is kind of like an online community, kind of like those like parent groups on Facebook. Um, but it's full of parents, educators, therapists, you name it. Um, like we constantly have people who go on there and just say, Hey, I'm having trouble with this student. I'm trying to think of some solutions and everyone's very collaborative. So we love, um, people getting part of that group. So you can find us any of those, um, you know, if it's a family looking for, you know, legal advice, they can give us a call. All of our contact information is on our, um, website and our social media pages. Great. Well, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate you sharing all your expertise with us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having us, Sasha. Did you know that two out of three teachers turn to Teachers Pay Teachers for educational resources? As a seller on TPT, this makes me so excited. I love seeing educators turn to other educators for support in their classrooms. There are so many great resources on Teachers Pay Teachers. And this could be made even better if we could involve school budgets in this process. Enter TPT for Schools. TPT for Schools makes it easy for administrators and teachers to collaborate when making curricular decisions. TPT helps you set up a way of using school funds for these resources. This is a new program and there's already over 5,000 schools registered. In the special ed world, this is even more important because we don't have that many resources and the resources that are provided for us might not be so appropriate for our class. To learn more about TPT for Schools, visit schools.teacherspayteachers.com. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one -on -one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum. Everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.